Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Welcome to this next episode of the Mountain Conversations podcast. Our expert guest today is marine biologist, oceanographer, award-winning communicator and author Russell Arnott. Russell is working as a researcher at the University of Bath and his specialism is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Hi Russell, thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking me to be honest. Absolutely, I'm very excited to learn more about our topic today. Um, Can you introduce the listeners to what we're going to be talking about? So, I find whenever I tell people that I'm a marine researcher, everyone's like, oh, you must do something really cool, like you must go somewhere really interesting, or maybe you can speak to dolphins, (laughs) or ride turtles, or train (laughs) seahorses. And then I'm like, no, I'm the coolest of all the marine biologists, because I study plankton and then they're like no I've all the marine <laughs> biologists I'm stuck talking to I've got the plankton <laughs> so yeah let's have a chat about plankton absolutely and this one I am dedicating this episode to my mum because when I told my mum that we were talking about plankton she her reaction was oh oh that doesn't sound very interesting and I said no I promise you by the end of the episode you will love plankton so that is my goal is to persuade my mum that plankton are actually really cool Okay, that's good, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest, when I started my PhD, I was of a similar frame of mind. I was like, oh, plankton. But now I'm like, yeah, plankton. Yes, plankton. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'd just like to, I know we're celebrating plankton here, but I just want to press pause on plankton and talk to you about your passion for the ocean and sort of where that came from. What sparked your sort of desire to learn more about the, the sea and what's in it? Um, well, I guess... I was unsure where the seedness came from, um, and uh, I found a load of books up in my parents' loft, and I was going through them, and they were like stories that I used to write as a kid, and all of them involve like sea creatures, like mantis shrimp, and giant squid, and sperm whales, and submarine adventures, and drawings of all these things. So I think maybe from a young age, I was like, all the animals that are in the sea are really cool. Yeah. So I think that was probably the early thing that happened. And then I, I remember being like four and my dad coming back from the pet shop and being like, I found the best ever pet for you. And like most normal parents would be like a gerbil or something like that. My dad got me a freshwater crayfish. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was just like, this is cool. And I called it Alphonse. Um, because I had this book about this guy who accidentally discovers a Loch Ness Monster baby and it grows in his bath. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's that. Then I moved to Dubai uh, in the mid-80s and when it was just like three roads through a desert. and But we had a white sand beach on our doorstep with water that was the temperature of a bath. So we were always, I guess, swimming and snorkeling and bodyboarding and things like that. 
so yeah there we go that and, sounds um, that sounds nice that sounds quite idyllic doesn't it <laughs> yeah no, it was nice uh, yeah so it was good it's very different to what dubai is now and uh but yeah you know it was, it was a great place to grow up and a lot of freedom and yeah a lot of interaction with the sea like yeah. pretty much every every weekend or every day so i was really lucky in that regard i do feel quite quite privileged no it sounds it sounds amazing i mean for me the sea it wasn't I mean, I've always liked sort of being outside in nature, but I was never really that connected to the sea until I moved. Um, obviously, as you know, I live in North Wales, sort of right on the coast. And this summer, we, we spent the whole summer sort of on the beaches, um, exploring the coast and exploring rock pools. I actually saw jellyfish for the first time in my life when we moved here. Um, little anemones in rock pools and, you know, all the little snails and all the little fish that you can find in the rock pools on the beaches. And I was just, I was just sold instantly. So yeah, so I definitely... I definitely now want to explore the sea. I think the sea for me represents something that's so unknown. You know, you look out there and it's just so vast and it's so, yeah, like it's just such a mystery to me what's going on beyond the, below the surface when you sit and look at it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that is a really exciting thing about snorkeling and you just put this mask on and then all of a sudden this thing that is basically just like a cover, it's just like blue or grey or green to the horizon then all of a sudden... You're like, whoa, look at all this cool stuff. And it's not only the animals. I also just like, I like finding random stuff underwater and things. And like, I always get really bored on beach holidays where people just sit yeah. there and cook themselves. <laughs> and so I'm just like, yeah, like off I go and try and have an explore and things like that so, yeah. yeah no I'd like yeah. to try and take my kids on a beach holiday I think they'd uh, I don't think they'd agree to it they want to be off doing things and adventures and exploring things definitely um so right plankton let's get down okay. to plankton business let's get down to it <laughs> I think we need to go back to the basics and you know what is a plankton I think that's where we need to start okay what is a plankton okay let's do this okay plankton are defined as any plant or creature that can't swim against the current. So plankton comes from the Greek word planktos, which means to drift. So it's obviously quite tiny stuff that can't move against the current, but technically jellyfish are also plankton because they have to go where the currents take them. Okay. You know, so they can be big. Um, you have plants and you have animal plankton. So the plant plankton is called phytoplankton and the animal plankton is called zooplankton. Mm -hmm. And within the zooplankton, you can have things that spend their entire life as plankton uh, or you can have things that spend a little bit of their life as plankton, like as babies, like fish eggs and crab babies and larvae and things like that, and then gradually grow. And so the, and then they're no longer plankton. So... Uh, I study the plants, the phytoplankton, and they come in all different shapes and sizes and groups. And then you've got like weird halfway things, uh, which aren't really plants or animals, which people uh, really struggle to classify. And again, I was like, what? These things exist? I'm Isn't like, them? what right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So no, it's really cool. So, so when you say they're neither plant nor animal... What are they? Okay, so, <laughs> so, so uh, loads of them have got really weird things. So there's a subdivision of phytoplankton, which are called dinoflagellates. And they uh, can photosynthesize, just like a plant. Uh, but they can also swim. 
and they can detect light and normal plants can detect light as well which is how they know to grow upwards toward, towards light sources but these things can basically swim and decide whether they want to go up towards the light and then they go up towards the light then they decide oh it's a bit bright for me or i need to get some nutrients and then they'll swim down to get some nutrients and and they can position themselves uh preferentially uh in the water to get what they need and then there's another group called ciliates and ciliates are like distant relatives of jellyfish i guess mm. and i'm thinking in particular my favorite plankton is everyone always asks me what's your favorite plankton <laughs> and there's this one called mesodinium and it's about the same size as the thickness of two human hairs okay and from the top it looks like a sunflower when you look at it under a microscope but from the sides it looks a bit like a beach ball with a, uh, a hula skirt on Okay. And it's being like pulled in a little bit. So it's like a figure of eight uh, in a hula skirt. And this thing, when I discovered it, I was like, why well, I said I discovered it. When I discovered <laughs> it, it existed, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? So what it does, it's got these six arms, which it pokes out into the water, like really stiff. like, And it pokes those big arms out, and that stops it from sinking. And then it, if something swims towards it as if it might eat it, it wraps those six tentacles around the top of its ball and then flaps its hula skirt. And for something that is the thickness, that's the size of two human hairs, it can jump 1.2 centimetres. Wow. Right. So if you scaled that up, that's like us being able to like jump and high-five passing aeroplanes. Right? Wow. Which is, and you think that they do this in water at that scale, where water is like, so thick and viscous like honey it's actually I, I believe that they hold the record for being the smallest thing that can jump the furthest or um but so these things right when they're produced they can't photosynthesize but they have a mouth and so what they do is they can they eat other plankton and dissolve them and steal the chloroplasts the equipment that they need inside them to mm. photosynthesize and then they can photosynthesize Wow. And then it's even weirder <laughs> because there's other species of dinoflagellate that also are plants that don't have the chlorophyll. And then they have a, they, they eat the mesodinium. So they eat third hand chloroplasts so they can photosynthesize. So you get this like weird food chain of people like people of <laughs> cells slightly uh, eating things, but dissolving the bits and stealing the bits that they want so it's a bit like us being able to eat a lettuce and then stand under a light and be able to produce our own sugar which is like pretty nuts but yeah Photo photosynthesis by proxy yeah. um <laughs> wow so in terms of your research you said you study the phytoplankton which is the plant yeah plant plankton that's a mouthful isn't it <laughs> so what what can you can you tell us what what it is you're looking at what are you looking for uh, well, phytoplankton are really, really important to start off, and I, I feel like we should emphasise that. Because plankton are plant and they absorb carbon dioxide, they're quite important for climate change because they can take that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then absorb it into themselves, use it, and then when they die, they sink and they take that carbon with them into the deep ocean and contribute to the food chain down there or eventually get turned into sediment. So understanding how plankton work in terms of climate is really, really important. It's also really important in terms of food chain like management and sustainable fisheries because they're at the base of the food chain. So understanding 
what causes them and what, what eats them and what situations they like and conditions they like to grow in is, is also important for that. And unfortunately, climate change is changing our ocean. It's making it more acidic. It's making certain areas of it hotter and certain areas colder. We've got all this extra nutrients running in from sewage and fertilizers from farmland, which are changing what plankton can grow and when they grow. And what I'm looking at specifically is how certain areas of our ocean are becoming calmer and other areas are becoming stormier. And different plankton like different conditions. Some like it stormy and do really well in turbulent conditions and other ones like it really calm. So my research has been tying together, I guess, like how mixed and how turbulent an environment is and trying to look at how that influences what uh, phytoplankton can grow there. Wow, that's that's incredible. It sounds absolutely fantastic um, and super important. So when you say they like the different conditions, you are you finding then that they're being sort of heavily affected by the sort of anthropogenic influence <laughs> on sort of our oceans yeah well so th- there's there's lots of different types as i said before of phytoplankton and they they behave in different ways and so the areas which are kind of you know, getting warmer and calmer so i don't know if you've been on holiday somewhere warm and been swimming in the sea and you swim in the top and it's nice and warm and then you put your hands down a bit and it's freezing cold yeah, yeah. so so in oceanography terms, that's called a thermocline. Like a, it's a sharp change in temperature in a small space of in a small depth. And so if you're a tiny plankton, you find going between that density from the cold stuff into the hot stuff quite difficult. But some plankton have little air bubbles inside them, and as I said before, some can swim. Yeah. So if they can get up into that top layer where it's nice and warm and they can get all the sunlight, they can grow much faster. And if you're a plankton that's stuck underneath that, then the top people at the top use people at the top, <laughs> the cells at the top, yep. use, uh, use all the sunlight to grow and they can actually shade out the ones underneath them. Mm. Um, so, so that's one aspect of it. But then there's also, if you're a plankton, some of them, a group called the diatoms have these really, uh, elaborate skeletons made out of pure silicon and they're really heavy and so in calm conditions they tend to sink out so we we're finding in areas that are nice and calm and quite warm that what basically phytoplankton that float do really well and phytoplankton that sink don't do as well okay so it's probably a big question but what impact will that have Okay, so, so one of the biggest impacts that we're finding is there's, there's not all plankton are good. Some phytoplankton are bad, and they cause something called a harmful algal bloom, or sometimes they're called red tides. So there's, there's about, I don't know, no one's really sure how many species of phytoplankton there are, but there might be something like 200,000 to a million different species. Wow. And so far, about 250 of those, so not very many, are harmful and um, so what these can do is these are all the dinoflagellates primarily that can swim and they can float and they go up into that top layer and that, where they can access the sun and then they just go nuts and they bloom in such high quantities that um, they turn the sea red. Mm. A lot of the problem species are, 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 are red and they cause this thing called the red tide. 
And uh, if you were, if as a fish, if you were to go swimming in it, it would clog up your gills. It'd be really difficult to find food and things like that. But then when the, that balloon dies and sinks, it uses up uh, loads of the oxygen as it decomposes, and you end up with an area devoid of oxygen. But about 250 of these um, species also produce a really nasty toxin. So if you were to go swimming in the sea as a human, you'd probably end up with like a bit of an itchy rash and irritated skin, it'd hurt your eyes. Um, if you'd swallowed some, you'd probably get nausea and diarrhea, things like that. And you can inhale it as well if it's really windy mm -hmm. and it can irritate your lungs. The big problem comes when uh, that those harmful plankton wash into a fishery or a, um, like a mussel bed or an oyster bed because they filter feed the, the, the phytoplankton and the toxin can then build up inside them into much higher concentrations than it would be in the water. And there's been situations where people have eaten a single shellfish mm. that's been contaminated and they've got something called paralytic shellfish poisoning where they've been paralyzed for life mm -hmm. from the high level of toxin in them and in extreme conditions it's caused death and um and it's and this can work its work through the food chain and at each step it kind of builds up and gets more concentrated to to the point where it can actually kill whales it's in that high enough concentration so there was a, a, a scenario in alaska a couple of years ago where it's a harmful algal bloom and it went up through the mussels to the lobsters to the sea otters finally to the orcas to the killer whales and the orcas died from having that so oh that's really sad uh, yeah so and annoyingly climate change uh combined with excess nutrients going in means that these phytoplankton blooms the bad ones are happening more often and they're happening uh with a much greater severity that they were so bad in fact that even donald trump <laughs> sidelined extra funding to research why they were happening mm. and to try and prevent them because as you would imagine if this happens off a, off a beach yeah. um the tourism is closed people can't go in the water it destroys the fishery it's a big big problem with drinking water and um yeah water companies spend you know millions of pounds a year trying to get plankton out of their reservoirs and things wow so these seemingly innocent tiny things as my mom calls them floating around the sea have a actually extremely significant which we knew but i'm hoping that we're we're making people see that they're they're you know they're a really important part of our ecosystem definitely for good yeah, yeah. and bad you know it's and that's really interesting i do as a side note um i have it's a bit of a question that i've always been curious about a few times when i've been on the beach this summer um there was like a a clear slime and I read that some it was something to do with an overproduction of nutrients and it can, you know, it can clog gills of fish and things. And, and it really, I probably shouldn't have poked it, but I, I did. People listening, don't don't poke things at the beach if you don't know what they are. Um, but I just wondered, if, can you shed some light on what that might have been? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know, but it's, yeah, it would have probably, I mean, plankton blooms, do happen naturally yeah. and just like the same way on land that you get those uh the two peaks in pollen so you get one around may time with the grasses and then you get another one in august for yeah. the tree pollen 
And it's, it's a similar thing in, in phytoplankton. You get what's called a spring bloom, where new, because it's been kind of dark and cold and stormy throughout the winter months, but it's allowed nutrients to build up, then all of a sudden, like spring hits, then it starts getting warmer, it starts getting less stormy. And, but all those nutrients are there, so the plankton just go, yeah, they just go for it. <laughs> and so going swimming uh, in the sea or trying to go snorkeling or scuba diving during the, the, those months is always quite difficult because it's like swimming in pea soup. Yeah. And then you get another kind of smaller boom just kind of towards the end of the summer as well, which is the tail end. And all of these different phytoplankton, you know, kind of compete with each other and try and occupy like smaller niches within, within that. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, what it tends to be more and more these days is, you know, uh, if we get sewage that overflows into into the sea, or farmers putting too many nutrients on their fertilizing their fields, or even things like cow farms and all yeah. that excess nitrogen and phosphorus that's, you know, in cow poo that gets washed down into riverways, all of this can cause plankton blooms as well. It's it's like going up and adding fertilizer all over your garden. So it'd be difficult to know what the species was without looking at it under a microscope. But it sounds like if you've got a load of green slime on the beach, it's probably, yeah, a plankton bloom. Wow. Well, I was just, I was baffled. We initially thought, is it a, is it a, a jellyfish that's been washed up? But it was clear it wasn't. Um, so yeah, I, go- I, I googled sea slime because that's all I could think of slime on the beach and it did come back with some results but yeah I just thought that was really it was really fascinating and that's what I'm that's what I mean I'm learning so much just by living by the by the coast just by going out there and looking for things it's just Mm. fascinating um right so we've done phytoplankton and I know that when people think about plankton there's only one thing that they're gonna sort of come up with and that's plankton from spongebob isn't it exactly (laughs) and I'm assuming that he is supposed to be a zooplankton he is, uh, and not many people know, but Stephen Hillenberg, who's the guy who invented SpongeBob, was actually a marine biologist. Wow, okay. So a lot of the things in SpongeBob hark back to that. So plankton in SpongeBob, Sheldon J. Plankton, is actually a type of zooplankton called a copepod. Okay. And these are the most, I'd say, ubiquitous. That's a good word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, they're everywhere. Um, all different... There's, loads and loads and loads of different species of copepod that all live in the ocean and they are really they're the kind of re- a key kind of intermediate between taking that prime production that's happened in the phytoplankton eating it and then fish then eat the copepods um, when you look at a copepod what the characteristic things are, of them are they've got those big long antennas out the front which yeah. they use to detect signals and detect pheromones and things to help them find mates and to find food but they've also got one eye in the middle of their head so the fact that fight of um, plankton from spongebob looks like a copepod it's like actually he's quite anatomically correct <laughs> oh wow who'd have thought it so how big would plankton from spongebob be like... uh so i guess like on the it's normally between about two and five millimeters okay so um again if you go out during you know the spring bloom when all, all of the all the plankton's kicking off you tend to find these copepods that come up and some copepods that the babies look slightly different they're called norpili and they can they can like they can be like a year or so old and they can like hang out in sediment and then they wait and they like a lot of 
animals they shed and they go through these different life cycles hmm. and then they wait until they it can be like five or six life cycles until they're their full copepod self and um yeah and they if you go out with a plankton net that's like the right kind of size mesh you get rid of all the phytoplankton but you pick up the zooplankton and you look at it they look kind of like um a jar of white fleas okay um and all jumping around and intermingling and stuff like that so wow and are these present in sort of all the oceans or is it are they are they in one place they're they're present in yeah all the all the oceans and uh they're present in uh in yeah most lakes and things like that as well so you get freshwater ones same same with phytoplankton you get freshwater and saltwater ones um yeah so i don't know some people might have heard of daphnia or water fleas so those tend to be an important one in in uh, a type of zooplankton that's in freshwater as well um but yeah so um, yeah zooplankton are everywhere and there's a there's a guy who i'd recommend following on twitter called uh, richard kirby who's uh, the plankton pundit and he's really into zooplankton so he's got some fantastic images so yeah do check out so if you want to learn more go and go and check that out um i think that's really interesting that there's freshwater plankton that's not something that i've ever considered i don't think and probably i think a lot of people when you say plankton they think of oh that's what whales eat is probably (laughs) but what is it that okay what is it that whales eat then because i'm assuming it's not the tiny mini phytoplankton no no so so whales eat probably like the neck size up slightly from uh from uh what they got copepods so they krill which are about five millimeters to about a centimeter long and um yeah these like massive bait balls of krill that happen so there's this idea that like i guess that a whale just swims along with its mouth open filter feeding but what it needs to do is get that massive concentration of krill in one space or like what's called a bait ball and it could be like up to like a ton or two tons of krill at a time and you think about it in terms of like energy in energy out for a whale a blue whale to open its mouth it's quite uh, an energy costly thing to do because the a blue whale's jawbone is the largest bone that's ever existed on earth right wow. it's absolutely massive and so the energy it takes for a whale to open its mouth and then it comes up underneath the bait ball and scoops up um you know a hundred tons like the same what it already weighs it swallows so when a whale opens its mouth it doubles in size and weight wow which is pretty incredible and then has to like push its tongue up against the roof of its mouth its tongue is like the size of two elephants Mm -hmm. and squirts all of the water out and the the krill get trapped in that baleen like hairy stuff that dangles down from the roof of their mouth and they swallow it down well i think krill are absolutely fascinating and everyone makes fun of me for thinking krill are fascinating um obviously i work quite a lot with a lot of great ape um experts and conservationists and they really make fun of me when i say oh but what about krill um and as i said to you before i read i read a book about krill and it really sparked an interest that i never knew i never knew was in me um i just think they're absolutely fascinating and completely underrated so well i'll I'll be honest i don't really know that much about krill so can you hit me up with some good krill facts (laughs) probably not many um but i i think the one that i really liked the most was the was the sort of the biomass of krill i can't remember the number maybe you know but haven't they got the highest biomass on earth like if you take them all and and combine them all and put them in a you know if you put them on a scale they'd be like the heaviest like 
biggest Whoa. amount of things on the planet. I don't know. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm definitely going to look that up. I've not heard that before. That is amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, because, and obviously the swarms can be so huge that you can, you know, the, the big red swarms of krill, it's just such a spectacle. I remember sitting Googling krill swarms for, and just looking at the pictures of them just to, because I think, again, you think of krill and plankton, you think of these little tiny things, but krill are actually quite big, like, compared to other plankton, aren't they? And and they yeah. can live for quite, I can't, again, I'm useless, I can't remember the numbers, but they can live for quite a long period of time and it just they just fascinate me and I, I just love sort of I love getting excited about things you know I don't claim to know very much about things but I think that's part of the battle isn't it it's just getting excited and thinking oh wow look at this look at this thing that's happening over here I want to learn more <laughs> exactly well yeah I mean yeah well okay what was the book called it was the curious life of krill okay I'm so I'm so checking that out. Look Thank it up. Honestly, honestly, it's a really it's a really great book. I was expecting it to be really sort of hard going and, you know, quite slow, but it wasn't. It was a really accessible read and it sort of takes you through the sort of um the Antarctic um krill expeditions and the research vessels and that kind of thing. And it's really mm. it's really exciting. <laughs> but I just yeah, wish I could I wish I could remember facts. <laughs> basically. No, no, so I guess I guess the the worrying thing, isn't there, at the moment, is that uh, a lot of the omega-3 oils and cod liver oil tablets and things, because cod has obviously become so rare because it's overfished, a lot of these giant factory ships are turning their attention to krill, krill. and yeah. sucking them out of the water in massive concentrations to make you know these health food tablets. Yeah. So, I don't know, you read the book, do you know about that <laughs> unfortunately not <laughs> I can't remember anything about that but yeah no I just I remember that like with most of the planet it's in in danger and it's one of the things that we're not thinking about and again as you said we think about the trees and we're all about rainforests and trees and of course they're super important but what we're not thinking about is the effect that we're having on the ocean and what effect that's going to have on sort of us going forward Exactly. Well, one, one of the things I read about, um, which I was quite shocked to f find again, so when you do seismic surveying in the water um, to find oil and gas reserves underneath the seabed, what they do is they have, this, they have a ship and it tows this series of transponders behind it, which are really, really highly tuned, um, like, like vibration detectors, effectively. And they, it's the size of a small town. That is how big an, an array they tow behind the boat. And wow. they have something called an air gun where they quickly vaporize water and it sends this really deafeningly loud shock wave through the water, down it goes through all the different levels of sediment and then echoes back up and that's picked up by the transponders behind it. And we've known for a long time that this is really bad for whales. So now any ship that is conducting seismic surveying has to have some uh, whale observers on, on top. Obviously, the problem is, is that you only see the whale when it comes up for breathing. Yeah. Whales spend about 10 minutes in every hour at the surface breathing. So yeah, so whales spend about 10 minutes in every hour, like at the surface, and the rest of the time they're underwater. And unfortunately, what this really loud sound does is scares them away stops them from finding food but this is one of the main causes of like mass strandings from humans 
Um, but, you know, if they go underneath the air gun, it can actually, like, destroy their brain and scramble their brain. Wow. So we know that it's really bad for whales. But new research has seen that it's actually really, really bad for, for zooplankton as well. And in areas that have conducted seismic surveying, that pressure wave from the air gun has killed all the copepods and the krill and the zooplankton and really taken that chunk out of the, um, of the food chain. So yeah, so seismic surveying doesn't just hurt whales, also hurts the little things too. Wow, and I think that's it. We just don't think about our wider impact, do we? and the effect that we're having can you this is a bit of a a depressing turn but could you describe sort of what would happen if we didn't have phytoplankton to start with I mean I know I think I can I can guess but what would the world look like okay well if we didn't have phytoplankton uh we we would probably not have any animals in the sea at all uh the sea would just be it would we would not have anything in there. I mean, I guess technically we would have sea grasses, which are plants, and we would have seaweeds, but those only really grow around, uh, you know, in the first 30 meters or so of, of depth. And um, so, yeah, we would, most of the oceans would just be empty. We wouldn't have fish and chips and things like that. So it would be, we'd have chips, obviously, but not fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that would be that would be a problem. Uh, the our planet would be much hotter than it is right now because they reckon plankton or the oceans have absorbed about, I think it's about twenty to twenty five percent of the ex- excess carbon dioxide that we've put out. And wow. I, I'll need to check that, but it's a, it's around that. Um, so th- we'd be seeing much worse effects from uh, climate change and global warming. Uh, so that would be a big issue. And weirdly enough, um, plankton also cause clouds. So that smell that you associate with the seaside mm-hmm. is, is a chemical called dimethyl sulfide that is given off by plankton. And that goes up into the atmosphere and that little molecule attracts water particles to it, which eventually forms a, a water droplet, which causes clouds. Wow. So, um, yeah, we would have globally much less rain um happening uh which would then obviously have impacts onto uh onto land and then obviously i said at the beginning uh 80 of the oxygen that we breathe comes from phytoplankton so without that uh we would be in pretty bad situation wow well, that's kind of mind blowing, isn't it? When you think of that. So just imagine, even if you know, even if you don't, if you're not mad about plankton, even the smell at the seaside, you know, you don't, you don't think of that, do you? That that's caused by these little incredible creatures that are just chilling out in the sea, floating yeah, around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Wow. So. Um, so you said that they're absorbing sort of what was it around twenty five percent of the excess. Mm. <laughs> What if is that must be having an effect on them? Like that must be doing something. Well, I, I guess the, the big effect that is happening, and people are still trying to figure it out, is it, it's kind of like the evil cousin of um, climate change, and it's called ocean acidification. Mm-hmm. So naturally, the ocean, because of the salt and stuff in it, would be slightly alkaline, and um, I think it would be about. So water, pure water, if you think back to your pH scale at prime, uh, secondary school, you've got acids, which are pH of one. Then you've got 
pure water, which is like a pH of seven, and that's like a nice green color. Remember the universal indicator. And then you know, acids are red, and then you've got alkalis, which would go up to 14. And alkalis are like that purpley color, aren't they? So if you've got some seawater, it would be about 7.7 like pH, so slightly, um, yeah, slightly alkali. And what we've done by burning things is our ocean has absorbed extra carbon dioxide and which has formed carbonic acid. So we've made our ocean more acidic. Um, And since the Industrial Revolution, the ocean has become about 30% more acidic. So uh, this has big implications to larger creatures, but people are still researching and trying to figure out what impact this, um, e- you know, extra acidity is going to have on the phytoplankton population. Wow. No, I can imagine. So obviously the acidity, I've seen sort of experiments being done where you can show, you know, how what a slightly increased acidity um, can do at home, you know, with vinegar and seeing I can't remember what what it was they used to show how how you could quickly you could dissolve something at home um but I can't I can't remember but anyway it was to display how what effect the acidity was having on the corals and I think that's absolutely terrifying but there must be some hope what can we do <laughs> uh so well I, th- I think the hope is is that by understanding phytoplankton better uh I, and I guess, kind of respecting the, the work that, the, you know, the job that they do and try and that we've got good plankton, bad plankton, depending on the situation. I think it's about kind of working with them and recognizing the causes of that. So the, the, the big thing, and I, I'm just, I'm just going to say the big thing is to just have less cow in your diet, mm-hmm. I think is the biggest change that we can all do because, you know, as well as water use, land use, methane emissions and all that. But one of the, there's about, they reckon there's about 500 uh, oxygen dead zones around the space or around the globally in the ocean. And this is where excess nutrients, primarily from cows, you think how many millions of cows there are on earth all pooping so much every day that needs to get, go somewhere and it tends to end up in the ocean mm. and it does that thing where it causes the plankton to bloom then the plankton die sink and as they rot they take all the oxygen with them so if you if everyone was just less cow and you can interpret that how you want uh just just try and have as little cow in your diet as possible and that also feeds through to like milk cheese dairy cows poop as well yeah um then I feel like the whole planet, including our ocean, would be in a much better state. Well, I think, again, it's something I come back to every episode. It's the fact that I think people fear having to make these huge, huge changes when really that's a small change that we can all make and collectively it would make such a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. So I think I think that is one of the things. The second thing I think would be really good, and this is pertinent to where the two of us live which is in wales is to support seaweed farming and uh there is a really big seaweed farm in menai strait up in north wales and they've just started a new one uh down near saint david in pembrokeshire uh called carimore which means for the love of the sea in welsh how beautiful (laughs) Uh, and uh seaweed farming is is 
could be our get out of jail for free card because as well as absorbing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere they also absorb excess nutrients from farming and from cows and turn it into food and a habitat for fisheries and then so i guess part of it is about changing our diets in in the uk to incorporate more seaweed and rec recognizing how good it is for us in terms of the health of our planet and for the health of ourselves um but the other new research also suggests that just by feeding cows uh seaweed once every fortnight reduces the amount of methane that they produce by 80 percent wow yeah so um yeah so promoting and supporting seaweed farms and buying like honestly check out these uh carry more check out the Menai Strait one, you can buy seaweed all dried, ready to do it and with recipe cards and things and they show you how to incorporate it into diets. But it's really cool. Wow, it's so. amazing. It's not something you'd ever think of and something so simple that can have such a huge effect. Well, it's... yeah, I mean, this is, it's just so great and it's really easy to do seaweed foraging. Mm. You just go somewhere at low tide and you don't have to, there's, there's hardly, there are some, there's hardly any poisonous seaweeds. Uh, so you can, for, for the most things, and they're quite easy to identify as well. You can go out there and be like, whoa, and like Rick Stein had a thing on BBC a couple of weeks ago where he went down to Cornwall and picked this weed and uh, seaweed and used it as a pasta replacement and things like that. So there's some really exciting things that you can do with it. I made, um, I made a, this is, this is the most middle class meal I think I've ever made. I made a <laughs> vegan ceviche. Um, <laughs> Whereas normally ceviche is a, a South American dish where you use raw fish and you kind of cook it in uh, lime juice. And I, made, I just fancied it and I, I was at a party, uh, a dinner party with loads of vegans, so I thought I'd try and make my own one. And I used a whole packet of seaweed in there to give it a fishy flavour, but it didn't have any fish in it. So Wow. I've actually had, um, now I think about it, I've had um, sort of vegan vegan tuna and sweet corn from you know sandwiches and stuff and that's it's seaweed now i think about reading the ingredients it's seaweed that they use to give it that fishy flavor isn't it so yeah, yeah exactly i mean we, we've already been eating seaweed without realizing it um because it's in uh it's in ice cream it's in beers it's in toothpaste it's in anything where you have to like have like a thickener or an emulsifier and something like that and obviously in in, in asia they've been you know eating it in all kinds of dishes mm -hmm. so for ages um but yeah it's really good for us and i think by supporting uk uh, and locally grown seaweed it not only helps our economy but also helps our ocean so Brilliant. Well, I'm I'm sold. Um, just to finish, um, how how do you think people should could get involved with the ocean and get passionate and get excited about the ocean? What can people be doing? You know, low cost ways to get involved and get I to guess, love the well, sea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess I think I think for a start, uh, I think go to the sea. Yeah. And this is easy for us to say, but I mean, so this is this is mind-blowing to me that this this is a, a statistic right so we're the ninth largest island on earth in the uk mm -hmm. and you can never be more than 70 miles from the, from the sea so probably like an hour hour and a half's drive and the current statistic 
is that only one in five children have seen the sea in the UK, which to me is breathtaking. And yeah. you don't have to go far. Like I lived in Brighton and was a teacher in Brighton for a number of years. And I knew people who taught in schools that were 10 minutes drive from Brighton Seafront. And they had 16 year olds in their class who had never seen the sea. Wow. So uh, I, I think that, that step one is just go and see the sea. If you're an adult, you haven't been to the sea, go and see the sea. Uh, if you're an adult with children, take your children to the sea. And I think that you don't have to go swimming in it. And I recognise that, especially here, <laughs> it can be quite yeah. cold and uninviting <laughs> for a lot of for a lot of the year. But um, you know, our UK waters are some of the most productive on earth and we've got amazing habitats. We've got one of the longest coastlines on earth. Uh, so uh, alongside my PhD, I founded a, uh, an organization called Incredible Oceans and Incredible Oceans is a marine communication agency, I guess. So what we do, we have lots of different strands to our bow. Primate, we, the big umbrella is that we like communicating to different audiences about the ocean and helping other people to do that. So as well as putting on events at festivals, at schools, at conferences, where everyone like dresses up and we have big inflatables and cool artifacts, like um, in my room, I actually have an orca skull like, uh, and things like that, which we take out. So I'll just, I'll turn my laptop so you can see it there. It's on top of my, uh, oh, wow. on top of my bookcase. <laughs> there we go. So I, uh, yeah, so we have cool artifacts and, and we try and balance that kind of fun, arty creativity, but with robust science. Uh, we like to be empowering in our message and to kind of give people the skills and be solutions focused instead of being quite doom and gloom. So as a result, we work with a lot of academics and we do training with academics um, to help them become better communicators and talk to different audiences. Uh, and we also do a lot of work with young people, uh, up training young people, especially with COVID, helping them engage with nature, helping them alleviate some mental health issues, build communities and learn skills about communication and build confidence. So there's a lot of different parts to it, but it all comes together in the end with about passion for the ocean and, um, and just trying to share that love for the ocean in the hope that hopefully if you love something, you're more likely to protect it. Exactly. And you hit on some key words that are so important to me about empowerment and getting people excited and giving people the opportunity. I think a lot of times, and we are going to have an episode about this in in, um, in a few episodes time, about accessibility of nature. And uh, mm. nature is just there on your doorstep. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be doing a PhD. You don't have to be a researcher. You can just be someone like me who has goes to the coast and has a look in the rock pools and gets excited about it and, you know, supports initiatives and just gets passionate about it and I think by doing that and by sharing the passion and by sharing the love and the excitement then I think we will start to you know we will start to make a difference definitely definitely I think yeah I, I mean I would love every single person in the UK to have seen the sea yeah I think that's a fairly low bar kind of uh <laughs> goal uh and next step up, I'd love it if everyone in the UK loved the sea and yeah. was just like, I'm 
so proud of our ocean, what it's done for us culturally and economically and, you know, in terms of our health and everything. So, yeah, yeah. it's important. No, absolutely. Well, I think we'll leave it there because I could talk to you for ages and ages and ages I think um but I'm hoping that this episode has persuaded my mum at least that plankton are so important and so exciting and I just think there, there's so many questions in my head that I wish we had had time for but maybe we'll save them for a future episode <laughs> oh, what I will say okay so I, I do talks about plankton and my mission when I go do a talk is it always really annoys me when I meet people with dolphin tattoos who go like dolphins are amazing so i try and get people to get plankton tattoos uh, like like a tramp stamp but a plank stamp <laughs> and uh so far i've managed to persuade one person to get a tattoo and she sent a photo of it to me she saw me talk in london and she shaved the back of her head and had a diet and tattooed on the back of her head and amazing like, oh my god that's amazing so um <laughs> That's my mission. Hopefully your mum will listen to this and go away and get her own plankton tattoo. Well, she does have tattoos, so it's 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 definitely something I think she'd be open to. So I hope you heard that, mum. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any plankton tattoos? Uh, I don't. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm going to get... I am getting one. I am getting one. I'm getting my cousin to do to do one. I've, current, I've got an octopus and a manta ray. Um, for, for, just to be really cliched <laughs> but uh, uh yeah I'm, I'm gonna get i'm gonna get my mesodinium which you heard about earlier i'm gonna get that's my favorite plank so i'm gonna get a mesodinium tattoo so is that the uh, the beach ball yeah the beach ball in the hula skirt excellent i can picture it now <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me today russell i think we've learned a lot and hopefully we've got some people excited about plankton and excited about the sea Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was a hugely eye-opening conversation for me. I knew plankton were cool, but I didn't realise quite how much of an impact they have on our planet. I just wish I could remember krill facts when I need them. I might now have to reread the Curious Life of Krill book to freshen up my knowledge about this exciting topic. I hope my mum and the rest of the audience are convinced that plankton are not just small things chilling out in the sea, but are once again a vital part of our ecosystem. Don't forget to check out Russell's Incredible Oceans by using the link in the episode details to find out more. Next episode, we'll hear from someone whose work absolutely inspires me. We're going to be talking about some incredible birds and how to get involved in nature in an urban setting. I'll end with an Einstein quote. Look deep into nature and then you will understand everything better. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.